In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We have come to well, arguably the most well-known event in Exodus. Well, it at least ties with the sending of the plagues. As every catechumen should know, Exodus 20 is where God delivers his commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. These ten words, or ten commandments as they've come to be known, represent the core of God's law. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, December 6th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our underwriter, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their amazing translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, I'm delighted to welcome our guest, someone who I think will do well to help us take a deep dive into the Decalogue, and that is the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Parvis, good morning, and welcome back to the program. Good morning. Good to talk to you. How are you doing? Oh, I am doing fine. I'm doing fine. Now, now, uh, how uh, familiar are you with Exodus 20? Is this a subject that you've dealt with a lot, like most pastors, or maybe a little more because of the context in which you minister? Well, certainly the, uh, the Ten Commandments are an important part of both uh, Judaism as well as Christianity, and uh, certainly I deal with them in both contexts. Although, you know, the uh, it's funny that Ten Commandments, as far as Judaism is concerned, is only part of 613 commandments. I often tease congregations that I preach in and ask how many commandments did God deliver to Moses. And uh, our people teach that he delivered 613. So, But these ten are pretty important. Well, these ten are pretty important. there, And you are pointing out something which has, uh, I guess, clouded the issue over the centuries— and that is, you know, how many commandments are there? You know, we have these 10. We have elsewhere in Exodus talking about the 10 words. We have uh, then, of course, following this uh, in later in today's program, tomorrow's program, the next day's program, we're talking about a bunch more commandments that God lays down. So it is kind of interesting how we've all come to understand just the 10. And, you know, people have asked me, students have asked me, well, why are there 10 and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor, but I always just say, well, I think it's because we have 10 fingers on our hands, right? It's a nice round yeah. number. And, and how we break up those 10 have been different even in my life. When I was uh, a Protestant Baptist, uh, you know, the 10 were in a different order slightly than yeah. they are as a Lutheran. Yeah, um, interesting. Funny enough, I actually I prefer would... the old order, but we'll, we'll see how we do that in a minute. I always think that, you know, the Ten Commandments are, are, are God's giving us a picture of the cross. And so the, the way that we split them up is a very good interpretation of what the cross is. And, uh, and then again, we, when we have this Decalogue and, of course, the picture of— I, I don't think God was able with one set of stones to do all 613 commandments. And I think they're all encompassed in these ten. Yes, I mean, that's, and I think that's what we mean when we say, like, the core of it, really a summary. And not only pointing to the cross, as you point out, but a description of what it looks like to be a, a, a disciple of Christ, to be a, a child of God. Sure, absolutely. And you have, uh, you have these, these, these actual, the commandments actually 
help us to visualize the cross and the one who who hangs at the intersection that can that can do it only only do it for us well i look forward to having you flesh that out for us but before we dive any more into our discussion why don't we start our time together in prayer if you could lead us please sure Abba Father, we thank and praise you for this day and for your word that continues to guide and strengthen us and and grow our faith. We praise you for your Holy Spirit that helps us to understand your word, and we pray by that same spirit that it would anoint us anew for understanding. And we pray, Father, for those who are listening today that that, Lord, whatever our discussion is, as flawed as we can be as men, that by your spirit you would speak to their hearts and teach them what it is you desire to know. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Amen. Okay, brother. Well, you know, we didn't just, you know, start off right here on top of Mount Sinai with the people at the bottom anxiously awaiting for Moses to come down. Some things happened before this. Uh, Would you like to catch us up a little bit? You know, yesterday we talked about the people and other things being consecrated and set up. Uh, what has brought us to where we are today? I mean, obviously, the the biggest thing that has brought us to where we are today is the exodus from Egypt. The entire book is written uh, for that. For that, and uh, of course, it is. I, I think that God, you know, we have a people who, for four hundred plus years, were living in a land in which. They were under the the control of the Pharaoh, and they probably at some point began to worship their gods. And yet in their, in their angst, they cried out to the only God that they knew from, their, from the stories, anyway, uh, that were handed down from father to son. Um, and, and yet they did not know how to be God's people. So in God taking them... Uh, though they were descendants of Abraham and saved by virtue of the faith that he had in God uh, and looking forward to the promise that God has given, they don't know how to be children of God. And so this time in the wilderness is an opportunity for them to learn, and this is where they begin to learn. You know, it's it's really amazing to me how they can see all these miracles that God performed even up to the to the foot of this mountain and yet still want to go back, still want the leaks that are in the, the pots in Egypt, you know, still driven by their stomach and their, their physical needs and their fears and all the things that they do without trusting God. And God is giving, uh, giving them an opportunity here, and unfortunately it takes a long time, uh, to learn how to be his children again. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I and this is what we're going to talk about a lot as we go through not only the Decalogue here, the Ten Commandments, but also as we go through these other uh, guiding principles and rules and laws and regulations that he lays down over the next couple chapters. You talk about how they don't know how to do it. Well, yeah, they've been enslaved. They've never had to do things like organize a government. They've never had to do things like decide disputes. All these things were taken care of them, for better or for worse, by the Egyptians who had enslaved them. And so now God is calling them, he's equipping them to not only live as he wants them to live, to, as you said, be children of God, but also to govern themselves. And we'll see that a little deeper as we as we get into the text, say, tomorrow and the next day. But yeah, without— even more fun, Yeah, even more fundamental than that is they don't know how to trust. 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to trust your taskmaster because you kind of know what to expect, the whip, right, on the back. But um, to trust to trust God is a whole different animal for them, and that's what they need to learn more than anything. Trust is indeed behind a lot of their, you know, longing for the meat pots, the flesh pots. You know, they they, yeah. they, they think back romantically of their time back in Egypt. But here we are at Mount Sinai, and I think, uh, I know that we'll end up splitting it up as we go, but I think the best thing to do is just to get the first 21 verses out. This will contain, however you number it, uh, what we call the Ten Commandments. Here we go. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. All right, brother, that's the end of at least this first section. And God spoke all these words saying, and he couches them in terms of him bringing them out of the land of Egypt, as you said, right? That's what Exodus is about. What's going on here? Take us through it. Well, it's just, it's, it's so clear to me that God, first of all, God gives us this whole Decalogue in a sense as a summary of everything that's in the scriptures. Of course, you know, again, the rabbis will teach that that if you number the prohibitions and the admonitions in the Torah, you come up with 613 commandments, uh, things to do and not to do that we must keep perfectly to find favor with God. And these things are all essentially summed up in these 10 that God with his finger carved on a stone and gave to Moses, right? And so um, you have you have the first, if you count them the way we typically count them, the first three are a picture of the 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 vertical um, cr- the vertical piece of the cross. It is the picture of the relationship we have between us and God. 
uh, it's about our relationship with him. And then the fourth commandment is this sort of transitional commandment that begins the relationships of one to another, which is the horizontal bar of the cross. And, you know, one of the things I always teach my catechumens, of course, is that, you know, if you go through it, through Luther's understanding of the commandments in the catechism, you come very quickly to the realization that you can't keep these commandments. We're, we're all murderers, right? One of the things that always throws me or, or, or surprises me, I don't know why it still does, but people, if especially Jewish people, as I talk to them, and, uh, you know, we talk about sin and, and breaking commandments, and they really don't believe that they are sinners. And the one thing they always draw to is, I've never killed anyone. And it seems like the only commandment that we, are, we can somehow satisfy ourselves to say that we've kept is that we've never killed anyone. And Luther doesn't give us that option, nor does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is just Jesus's rabbinic pilpul on the Ten Commandments, right? And so we have we have this, you know, these list of commandments that on the surface seem like it's just ten. Certainly we can keep ten, and we can't keep any of them. And the only one that can keep them for us is the one that was hung at the intersection of those two bars, Jesus, who kept the law perfectly so that we could be saved. And that's that's the picture that I always use of the Ten Commandments with my catechumens. Sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. You know, when I look at the commandments, I always get, you talk about getting tripped up. And one of the things I get tripped up, which is why I brought it up at the beginning, is the numbering. So we have, uh, you shall have no other gods before me as the first commandment. At least for most Christians, that's the first commandment. Uh, Jews will include the previous verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is sort of the first word or the first declaration. But for us, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Now, this makes a lot of sense for the Israelites who are, as you said, coming out of the Egyptian religion. Certainly, they've adopted some of those practices and beliefs. They're to cast those aside. And God has also continuously reminded them not to engage with the gods of the, of the other uh, nations in which they'll come in contact. So, so this idea of starting off the commandments with you shall have no other gods before me. As we've had to illustrate earlier, this doesn't mean that God is saying that these idols are anything at all. He's just saying that to those who worship them, they are something. And this, there's certainly this temptation for his own people to flow back and go back after these, these gods. It's one of the reasons why they're wandering in the first place is to keep them away from fleeing back to Egypt, to keep them after, not after other gods. So that's important that we begin the commandments this way because we have to remember who the— uh, who the authority is, right? We have to know who the authority is by which all law flows. That's something that we're really struggling with in our society today. Yeah, and, you know, he's not even talking about just, you know, Ra or the Pharaoh or whatever the cat god is there in, in Egypt. He's Second. not even talking about the things that we consider to be gods, but when he goes into the rest of the first commandment, he describes what those gods are. Those are carved images, likeness of anything in the heavens. So whatever you, I mean, it's all of the things that we have that we carry with us. And, you know, I can't help but 
I, I can't help but project forward that, first of all, these Israelites have gathered the Egyptian plunder, all their gold, right? Their earrings and their bracelets and all this stuff. God has allowed them to take them. And then they use that stuff to build a God. And uh, um, and so, you know, God is speaking right to where they are right now. And in the very, I mean, they haven't done this yet. And yet God knows that the very plunder that he allowed them to take is what they're going to use to, to do to do exactly the opposite of what this is. That's right. He doesn't even get out of the first commandment before uh, they are going to end up breaking that first commandment. Um, In terms of ordering um, our Reformed friends and Baptist friends, uh, our Greek Orthodox friends, they're going to make verse 4 through 6 the second commandment, that you shall not make for yourself a carved image or make an idol. For them, that's what they classify as the second commandment, which is what I grew up with. Uh, And Mm. then to make to make 10, then they combine the coveting at the end. Now, what's interesting right. for what's interesting for me from my perspective is it actually makes complete sense to me that the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran churches combine, so to speak, these commandments at the top. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Combining those two make a lot logical sense. What has never made sense to me, even as a uh, hopefully faithful Lutheran pastor, is splitting up the, the the thou shalt not covet into two. But of course, if you don't do one of those things, you're only going to have nine commandments, which I think is interesting. But we have well, the I, second commandment as don't make yourself a carved image. I wonder why they do that. Actually, I have a thought, but go ahead. Well, I was just going to also comment on the splitting of the two coveting is that um, one, of course, is coveting what? Um, how do you split those two up? You shall not cover your neighbor's house, and you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, male. So one is coveting things, and one is coveting living things. And uh, that, I think well, I'm sure that's we'll... a well, I'm sure we'll get to that, but yeah, in 10 it says you now should not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I guess like your yeah. neighbor's wife and his ox and his donkey. So when we talk about living things, um, we're also talking about living things being in the possession or belonging to your neighbor. So there's a Somebody lot of there's a lot of yeah. sticky, uh, uh, you know, f- <laughs> understandings of of ownership in that time. Uh, which is why, you know, do not covet makes a lot of sense, especially if you're teaching it to children. But we'll get there. I'm sure we'll get there. But back up here, I think the reason why they separate you shall not make yourself a carved image is because of uh, the iconoclasts, right? People who will say you shouldn't have things like crucifixes or you shouldn't have icons or you shouldn't have things that uh, depict God or his angels or or anything in heaven or Jesus in any way because you'll be led to worship those things or even by possessing them you'll worship those things but that's not what God's talking about here is it no and I, I think that if we were to make those things God's for us then that would be breaking the first commandment which means this is part and parcel of the first commandment right and then, of course, there is this, you have to, you can't separate the first commandment without the, I am a jealous God. 
In other words, you, you do those things. I will visit the iniquity of your fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands. And, of course, the alternative to that is not just thousands, but a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so the the whole business is about whatever gets between your relationship with God, you are making a God. Right, of course. It cannot just be the mere creation of imagery yes, without our, talking about worship. We see yes, in Exodus nobody 20... Looks at, nobody looks at, you know, uh, Michelangelo's end times or last judgment in the Sistine Chapel and worship that as a god, even though that's a, that's a likeness of God. That's not something we worship, right? It's not a god. And yet someone can, like the... Uh, like. You know, I think that a lot of people misunderstand um, Greek Orthodox worship uh, with icons uh, as being somewhat worshiping, and the same is true in Roman in Roman Catholicism when we go to the feet of a statue of a saint and light a candle and uh, do the things that that happen in that environment. One of the things that I thought was very uh, challenging for me is I went to a Marianist a Catholic church in Texas while I was visiting down there, and they had they didn't even have Jesus behind the altar. It was Mary. Uh, is that worshiping another god? And that's that's one of the challenges that comes out of this discussion. Well, there are a lot of challenges. I mean, on the one hand, you have Lutherans who won't even put the choirs up front because of the right. temptation to take your focus off Jesus. Right. And then you have those same Lutherans who might criticize the Eastern Orthodox for having an image of a saint. And then you have Reformed churches who might say images of saints in and of themselves could possibly be sinful just to possess them because of what they call the Second Commandment. But I right. think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating that the Orthodox have, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, as the second commandment. That's something I wouldn't expect. But as yeah. you said, it's because they rightly interpret it. This is about taking things, idols of gods during this time would have been physical representations of spiritual gods, but you would be seeking to earn the spiritual gods' favor by caring for and venerating their idol. God doesn't want them to be doing those things. Now, of course, we combine it with the first commandment, which, as I said at the top of the show, makes a lot of logical sense to me. Uh, for what it's worth, full disclosure, I don't think there's any perfect godly way of numbering the commandments. I don't think, I think it's a nice mnemonic. I think numbering them helps us remember them, but I wouldn't um, uh, uh, devalue the opinion of, say, my Baptist friend who's discussing the commandments because they happen to number them differently, or my Greek Orthodox friend or even uh, Jewish people, we, we, we could still talk about the commandments as a whole without getting hung up on the numbering, because God didn't number them. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the point, is that we look at the Scriptures and say, God did not say, okay, this is the first commandment, and this is the second commandment. I mean, it's just a proclamation of words that we, we break up for our, for our purpose for learning. Precisely. So and I the, just think... You know, illustration of the tablets with three and seven make more sense to me as a Jew than it does four and six, uh, even though it doesn't seem very balanced. And I also, I, I look at, I see a lot of representations of the Ten Commandments where they put five and five, and I say, nope, that's absolutely wrong. 
even though it looks better that way. <laughs> mm, sure. So yeah. let us, uh, anything else before we go to what Lutherans would describe, we Lutherans would describe as the second commandment. Right now, uh, we're still in the first, which includes having no other gods and not making carved images. Anything else? Right. That's it. Okay, so the second commandment, which is uh, in my, also really, if you really, if you follow these same sort of rules about combining things, you could combine this with those, which is why we do, by the way, in the tables. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Certainly related to uh, self-serving idols and also having other gods. But anyway, the God that we have, Yahweh, right? We have his name. Having the name of the God means something, and using it improperly is something God says do not do. Uh, we're still in the first table here. Uh, I, what's going on? I mean, I, I would argue that, the then, and this is why I argue for the rabbinic interpretation of how these things are split up, in that in the first commandment, we're talking about other gods. And so that's what this carved, the carved images and likenesses and all of that is about other gods. In the second commandment, we're actually talking about our relationship with the one God who is the true God and how even if we don't take a, a likeness of another God, even if we don't worship some, some kind of carved image of, of a calf or a cow, um, we can still sin by, by relating ourselves to God in an improper way by, take, by not venerating his name, too. And so it takes it to the next step, if you will. Sure. You know, vanity to me always is, is conjures in my mind this self-serving idea. And the example that I use, uh, or at least from my own experience, would be whenever you use God's name for your own benefit. From my childhood, growing up in the mountains, I, I would see like uh, electrician vans driving down the road with Bible verses on the side. And what's the point of the Bible verse? It's sort of a nod to say, hey, if you hire me, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I won't cheat you. Yeah. You know, Is it really like they're trying to get people for Jesus through their work van? Hey, maybe. I don't know. I'm not judging their motives. But it's very possible that they're just using the Lord's name in a vain kind of way. Or I recently uh, bought a truck, and if I would have went down to the dealership and the owner of the dealership just happens to be a member of my congregation, I would have said, hey, you know, I, I'm the pastor. Give me a good deal. Uh, I believe that would be using the Lord's name in vain, right? Using my vocation as a way to benefit myself in some monetarily way. So I think there's lots of ways that we could misuse the Lord's name without even thinking about it today uh, that don't necessarily involve like idol worship so much as it is just not honoring and respecting the purposes for which God has given us his name. Yeah, and of course the the uh, the tragedy of media the tragedy of entertainment is that's happening so often. We've turned the name of Jesus into a swear word. We we curse God all the time with his name, and, and our children pick up on that, and it just becomes something that happens, and we've got to really fight against that. Yeah, when I'm teaching this to you know middle school catechumens, you know, we deal with the OMG, the first thing. Right. And yeah. it's and it's something where they do it subconsciously and I, and I have a hard time getting that across across to them because they're like well I'm not trying to do anything bad yeah it's literally part of their vocabulary but at the same time now that you do know about it 
it's it's important you remove that from your vocabulary because it's a, yeah. it's a poor it's a poor witness. Absolutely. Even the, well, take, the, the, the blended swearing that you know even even to the point where I hate to quite say this because this is probably nitpicking, but you know Gomer Pyle and his golly that is a that is a blended swear word that comes from taking the Lord's name in vain, and we 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 try to soften it and bring it back. And I think we just need to recognize what we're saying and and understand that we're always going to be in need of repentance, but we also trust in Him and the Holy Spirit to help us find better epithets to use. Oh yes, I agree with you, uh, but I also give credit to those who recognize that specifically using the Lord's name in a way that is yeah. uh, inappropriate, and they want to try to divert from that, even if they're not super successful, I still, I guess, admire their effort, right? They're recognizing the honor that God's name should have. I'll tell you what, brother, we are up against a, we're up against a break, but I'll tell you what, we, when we come back, we will keep going. We'll be in uh, commandment number four. Folks, don't go anywhere. We'll both see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Before we jump back into the text, I want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show or anything that you want to get off your chest, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer your questions on or off the air. Now, Pastor, before the break, we were just finishing up with the third commandment, and here we are at that transitional commandment, which uh, sort of serves as a hinge between those that we uh, are uh, that appeal to God, our relationship with God, and as we move towards our horizontal relationship with one another, because honor your father and your mother contains aspects of both. Um, actually, you know what? I'm sorry, I've jumped ahead. We haven't even got to the Sabbath day yet. Pardon me, we're yeah, in the thought, third commandment. I thought yeah, maybe you we, were reform background, but uh, apparently you're not. <laughs> uh, no, no, we are. Uh, we haven't gotten to the Sabbath yet. Definitely don't want to forget that because the commandment is literally remember the Sabbath day. So why don't we remember right. it, set it apart, and talk about it now? Go ahead, brother. Well, I, I always think this is an interesting thing because, of course, Sabbatarianism is, is such a big issue with regard to our ministry and the ministry of uh, witnessing both to Jewish people as well as to the church. Um, and so how do you keep, I mean, and, and I think it's a mistake to say, you know, as Christians often do that our Sabbath is the, is Sunday. 
Sabbath is still Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. We worship on Sunday because we want to worship and honor the resurrection. But um, the Sabbath day is all about, and, and I think this is the, the, the irony of my ministry when I talk to Jewish people and to a lot of people who claim to be Christians, claim to follow the commandments, and yet are evolutionists in their theories, um, who, who don't really buy into the creation narratives of the scriptures, which was what the third commandment is all about. It's all about the creation narrative. God is creator. And when we you know, when we, when we don't honor the Sabbath day by recognizing his creation, we're breaking the third commandment. Right. I mean, we have this idea that God has created the world in six days, the hexameron. On the seventh day, he rests, and he calls us to rest then too. Yeah, if we don't honor that, we're not really honoring God, which is what we're supposed to be doing. That's the proper use of God's name. It's the proper understanding of not having any other gods before us. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Uh, but with the idea that Sabbath means a rest, of course we find our Sabbath rest in Christ, which is what I think people mean when they connect our uh, Sunday worship to Christ and perhaps call it the Sabbath because it is the day that they're setting apart in rest, in Christ, rest from their labors, and looking forward to the eternity that God has uh, uh, provided them through the sacrifice of Christ. So that rest truly does come through Christ, and, and then Sunday focuses on that. Uh, would you have us worship on Saturday as an as a you know as a as a nod to the original understanding, or how far does your you know your 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 thinking on this go? Well, I just, I think it's, unless, you know, certainly what you have just said is absolutely true. And yet, I think when we communicate to the unbeliever or to Jewish people that we have changed the Sabbath to Sunday, which is kind of what we do when we communicate that, uh, that basically undermines them thinking of us as the people of the Word. And so I think we have to be really careful about calling Sunday the Sabbath. There is no question that our, 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 that our Sunday worship, the first century Jewish church, gathered together on the first day of the week because of the resurrection. They also did also keep Sabbath day as well. And so they did both. And I think in some sense we should do both. It's, it's perfectly fine and, and, and acceptable and even preferable, I think, to worship on Sunday. But we recognize, uh, you know, I, I don't think that Sabbath has to be a day in which we don't do anything, but we use that time to just remember and maybe use that time as an opportunity to look forward to the celebration of our rest, which is in Jesus. Uh, um, but I do think that we still have to, to recognize that Sunday worship and the Sabbath are still two separate things. Because it does undermine our witness when we don't. Yeah, but I will push back a little bit and say that All I right. don't know that I don't know that Joe's, Jews would say, "Well, you know what? You guys say that you move Sabbath to Sunday, therefore you're not people of the Word." They might be a lot more concerned about the fact that we say that Isaiah is referring to Jesus in his prophecies, and they'll just flat out say that that's not true. They will. It's to be when we do that, when we do that properly, and talk about Isaiah seven as pointing forward to Jesus. 
and then we call Sunday the Sabbath, I mean, they're not going to listen to us at all because we have a totally wrong interpretation of the Scriptures. And if we don't have something consistent, then our, our witness is undermined. That's my only issue. Sure. It reminds me a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, however, though, who, who, who look at the laws of the Old Testament and they see them as um, something that is, is essential to keeping in terms of being in this world, and thus they have worship on Saturday yeah. to fulfill I'm this sure Sabbath idea. I'm just saying that as we, as we call ourselves people who interpret the Word of God properly, um, we need to also recognize that the Sabbath issue— especially for even Seventh-day Adventists and, and Jews as well, uh, becomes a stumbling block to our witness, because right there we've screwed it up on the most basic thing. And that, that's my only issue, is that, it, that we need to communicate well what we're talking about when we say, why do we worship on Sunday? Not because it's Sabbath, but because we worship on Sunday because we're celebrating the resurrection and Jesus is our rest from the law, but that's not that doesn't make it the Sabbath. That's my only issue. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the visitor who's within your gates. Because, and he connects it to the hexameron, the six days of creation. Right. So we see that right. the Sabbath day is something that was established not here on Sinai, right? He says, remember it, not you shall not, or you shall keep the Sabbath holy. He says, remember the Sabbath day, the one that God had already established. Very important. Growing up, um, you know, regardless of the definition of whether Sunday is a Sabbath or not, I do recall going and to dinner after church and, and hearing the people that I'm at dinner with, who were, again, Baptists, uh, complaining to the waitress because she was working on Sunday. Right. Of course, and if she wasn't working, of course, if she wasn't working there, she wouldn't be there to serve them, which I always, even as a child, thought was quite hypocritical. Yeah. However, if we're going to say, well, we have to be proper interpreters of the Bible, and the Sabbath day is the Sabbath day, and we shouldn't translate that to Sunday, then I guess we should also do no work on those days. And what does it mean to do no work? And, and I think that's that's. I honestly believe that what these, what the work is that we're not to do is we're supposed to rest in the trust of God. That doesn't mean, so what does that mean about, does that mean I can't mow the lawn? No, because I don't view mowing the lawn as salvific, right? I don't think if I'm mowing the lawn, that means I'm a saved person. Uh, it's working, it's resting from our works, resting from our works that we think save us. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I'm always amazed at, because one of the, you know, the, one would argue that the rabbis are nitpicking the Sabbath, and yet it says here that you are also not to allow your sojourners who, worship, who are, are with you within your gates to work, and synagogues always have a temple goy who will come in and turn on the lights and do the work necessarily for, necessary for worship on the Sabbath. That also is against the, the, the strict interpretation of this law. And so this law is really, I think what we have to define is what work is. And if Jesus is our rest, then the work that we do on the Sabbath, that we shouldn't do on the Sabbath, is the work of salvation. It's not like anything that we do on the Sabbath is going to save us. 
but we we rest in the reality that God is our Creator. He has saved us, and that doesn't mean I don't think that we can we don't we can't go to the store and and mow the lawn. Although I think it's it's really good to take a day because we don't even take Sunday to do that. You know, we'll take our Sundays, we'll go to church, and then we'll go home and mow the lawn. There is a wonderful thing about a day just to rest in the knowledge and the joy that God has brought us into his people through Jesus. But I believe if we were to define work simply as works by which we would earn salvation, then we have to not discount verse 9 that says, six days you shall labor and do all your works. So work your way into heaven the first six days yeah. of the week, but then rest from yeah. it on the seventh. You're right, and we have to we have to be careful about that as well. So I think labor uh, and work here mean just that: taking care of the lawn, doing works. You know, there is this God is creating the world in six days. We honor His creation, and we witness to that by our resting on the seventh, and then our rest in temporal means means resting from labor, but with the appearance of Christ. We see an eternal rest, an eternal Sabbath fulfilled by him, which, of course, we celebrate on Sunday because of his resurrection. So I, I do think that there's some room for digging into that, and I think we are are really troubled whenever we start to say, you know, this is – like, for instance, you know, if, if Sabbath if – we, if we incorrectly say that the Sabbath is on Sunday now, and I'm not necessarily saying that's incorrect, but if we incorrectly say that Sabbath is on Sunday now – and therefore, for instance, it'll taint our witness before the Jews. But then the Jews believe that this work means physical labor, but we say, no, this means just working your work, good works. Then that would, would also taint our interpretation. I guess what I'm saying is for people who don't have faith in Christ and don't interpret the Bible according to him, anything we say, especially if it relates to Christ, is going to be tainted in their mind. And what is the purpose of all of this anyway? All of the Ten Commandments, or even all of the 613 Commandments, you know, our our rabbis have a way of massaging the law to sort of make it appear that it's something they can keep, where in fact Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't keep any of this, it's all about you can't keep the law. That's why God gives it to his people, to show them that they need to trust in themselves and not their own, in, in him and not in themselves. Absolutely, which is which yeah. is I think curious why you know it's like all your labor needs to be done in the first six days rather than seven, so they can set it apart. Um, it's not as though they should do six days worth of labor and then just sort of wait for God to dispense it from the sky. Yeah. It really parallels that of giving of the manna, which oh, I guess hasn't happened yet. But when the or has it happened? No, it has happened. When the manna comes, they collect everything they want. And then they have to collect extra because the next day is a Sabbath. So um, I think that's also where we can get this understanding of what is meant here. I think where yeah. the hypocrisy comes in is where if you say, I'm setting this day apart to the Lord, and whether or not you have to work or can't work, I'm not, I'm not laying that burden on anybody. What I'm saying is you shouldn't then go off and criticize others for, say, working and serving you, kind of what you said with the – with you have uh, someone who's not a Jew taking care of the of the synagogue, so Sabbath rest was really designed for everybody, right? Servants, everybody. animals, uh, and it's not a day to be served by others, but of rest and community. And in this day, our rest comes from Christ, and our community is in the church. So we observe that seventh Sabbath rather whenever God gathers His people around Word 
and sacrament. Um, and I think maybe that's a way that we can meet in the middle, right? So you have like epiphany, but you observe it often on the next Sunday. Well, we'll say this. Sabbath is one thing, but we observe it on Sunday ah, most of the time in our church. Yeah, there we go. Sabbath observed. I love it. I'll tell you what, now we're finally to the one that I jumped to earlier, and that's this transition yeah. verse, which is four, honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise. Right, brother? Yes. And really the only one with a promise. Well, promise that's positive, right? Sure. Because the promise, the promise in the... Uh, in the third commandment or, or the, I'm sorry, the second commandment is showing steadfast love to thousands, but visiting iniquity on the fathers to the third and fourth generation. But, uh, you know, the, the, the parental relationship is so important to God because it is a picture of our relationship with him who is our heavenly father, which is why this is such a great transitional commandment. Right, right, because there's divine aspects and also, you know, vertical and also horizontal aspects yeah. when we deal yeah. with parents who represent God. Yeah, and and this also, of course, with Luther and with Jesus goes to our authorities, and how do we respect our authorities? Because they're just pictures of God uh, on earth in in this kingdom. Uh, so the, you know, the, and I, you know, I'm I'm amazed at how many people, and I think growing up in in, in Judaism as well. Um, for some reason, for years, I, re I misinterpreted this commandment. In fact, I misremembered it. And I'm not sure if I was actually taught this or not. I'd have to go back and look at it. But it was, I always used to think that honoring my father and mother so that their days would be long on the earth. But it's my days that are long on the earth. When I show the honor that, that, that authority gives and deserves, my days are longer on the earth. Well, right. I mean, we have this, you know, whenever you are honoring your father and your mother, that is, you are looking to them, you're respecting them, you are, are looking to God uh, in the ways that he wants you to live. You Things just are going to go better, period. Yeah. You know, God, yeah, God it's not as though the we have this religion that's sweeping America today, uh, health and prosperity and the prosperity gospel and this idea that if you're faithful enough to God, he'll kind of throw you a bone and he'll throw you blessings and he'll he'll make sure that things go well for you. Well, that's not how it works. What it, how it works is when you do things according to God's will, things will typically go better because that's how he's designed it. Of course, there are plenty of pitfalls and persecutions, too, because the world doesn't like that. But we have here, honor your mom and your dad, keep these commandments as a, you know, in terms of all of them as a whole, and things are going to typically go better for you. Amen. Plus, you so have we a lot have... less... So we do have a, a few more commandments to get through. In fact, the whole second table here, and we just have 10 minutes left in the program. But, you know, oh, they start God. to be, yeah, they start to be a little self-explanatory, although we could certainly spend plenty of time on each. We do when we teach catechumens. But let's take uh, the next three, right? 13, 14, and 15 is you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. Well, murder means something a little deeper than just murder, and committing adultery has some asterisks next to it, and maybe stealing's a pretty straightforward, but let's, let's go through those pretty quickly. 
I mean, yeah, what is there to say except that I always, again, I always love that people think that they've never killed anyone when, in fact, um, Jesus gives us the very good in, in, uh, understanding that when we've called our brother Raka, we've already killed him. Uh, it's about it's about caring for our neighbors, and that's why Jesus, um, I love that he breaks this all down, including the 613, into the two commandments, love the Lord your God and love one another. All the law and the prophets are summed up in these. Uh, that's what these are about. Right. And and loving one another involves more than just, you know, not murdering not them. It's like, thanks. Right. right. Uh, you know, and here specifically in terms of context, it refers to taking innocent life. There are situations right. such as just wars and capital punishment. This law, no matter what you think of those things, uh, war and capital punishment, et cetera, this commandment does not prohibit them. God, in fact, imposes these things uh, in some right. cases. So, so while you can certainly choose to be a pacifist, for instance, uh, I think it'd be improper to quote this commandment as your sedes doctrina for doing so. Right, because this is about how do we love our neighbor, and not only do we not kill them, obviously, uh, but but we don't speak poorly of them. We don't right. injure their patient we build them up that's that's how we would want to be and that's how god is calling us to love our neighbor you don't steal from them you don't uh, you know you don't kill them and i'm not talking even their reputations uh and i think that we you know i used to have a really uh i know we don't have time but i you know i think you can have a really obnoxious neighbor who can give you trouble for many years of your life and you can break all these commandments uh, just in your heart, because it's, sure. it's just the way we are, yeah. I've been blessed with good neighbors, but I can definitely appreciate that for sure. Well, yeah, that's good. Not, not stealing seems pretty straightforward. Uh, we could talk a lot about the adultery, because it doesn't seem to apply to men taking multiple wives during this time of you know ancient Near Eastern understanding, uh, but that's right. certainly how it's applied today, because we, we understand it in the, uh, I guess, in the ideal as God established in the garden. Um, and today we, I guess we're probably more strict with it, uh, ironically, than, than back then. Yeah, by Jesus's time, even polygamy was pretty much a thing of the past. Right. But he's making it clear this is not about multiple marriages necessarily, but it's about coveting this, this it's about thinking impure thoughts about other people, sexually even, specifically. And so, and we, we can do that with, with four wives and still do that, right? Uh, so uh, it, it really is about us breaking the relationship that God has given us in the covenantal relationship of marriage. In the next, we have, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, this one's an interesting one, and I, I actually do want to spend just a smidge of time on it. Because the question comes to me often, we actually had an email about it uh, from one of our listeners, but also from my catechumens, and I know you had it too. This does not necessarily say, uh, thou shalt not lie. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The question that comes to me sometimes is, are there situations where it's okay to lie, to bend the truth? Yeah. So what do you think about that, brother? We all get the little white lies thing. You know, it's better to tell a little white lie than to hurt somebody. Um, 
I think it's better to tell the truth, but be careful how we tell it. Um, and bearing, I mean, bearing false witness, this is obviously legal language. Uh, it, is a, it is a testimony against the, the neighbor. Uh, this would certainly include gossip, uh, probably lying about them, especially in public. Um, uh, it's a legal interpretation here, but it, it does include lying, I think. Okay, well, sounds good. You know, I think that when we look at that from the people who are asking are often talking about what you call the little white lie, you know, the idea that um, by being completely truthful about something that has no effect on anyone else except to, well, maybe hurt their feelings, then uh, – and they, it basically <laughs> – I think about premarital counseling, how we interact with one another as husbands and wives. And sometimes someone is not looking for the truth so much as they are looking for reassurance for their anxieties. Um, yeah. So navigating these things sometimes takes a little bit more than just a first level reading of the situation. But I tell you what, we I'd love to get into it, but we're right here at time, right? So let's just talk about yeah. coveting. We should combine them both into thou shalt not covet, right? <laughs> but we won't. But, now you know there's a reason. Yeah, exactly. Uh, commandment nine, you shall not, I'm sorry, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Um, this is in verse 17. In the same verse, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant, his male servant, his ox or his donkey or anything belongs to your neighbor. Uh, to kind of punt from the catechism's point of view, this is about contentment, right, brother? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, they do have distinct, distinct separation with regard to uh, objects and things like that. Your neighbor's house is far more, uh, I mean, there's far more to coveting your neighbor's house. Uh, that is his protection, his his covering. And so when you covet that, you're not content with yours. You want theirs too. Uh, and then it, then there's his things, right? So um, it is about what what is it, why are we not satisfied with what we have? And what does it mean to covet? Because it doesn't mean that we can't go out and buy a nice car, uh, but we, we've got to be careful not to buy that car because we're really jealous of what the neighbor has, right? Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, we're up against the time. We'll have to finish the rest of this chapter tomorrow with my guest when we'll also be moving into a pretty difficult situation about talking about servitude and slavery. If God gives regulations around slavery, does that mean he condones it? Well, no, but tune in tomorrow as we explain why that is. But for now, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Kaiba Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Brother, I knew you'd bring a lively discussion. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Yeah, sorry if I was a little wordy. No, it was exciting. No, I think we bo got bogged down uh, in the Sabbath, but that's okay. Yeah, I tell you what, yeah. we, until uh, tomorrow, folks, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.